You have heard of the endurance of Job. We are told in the epistle to James in chapter 5, what a man of uh, endurance, persistence. Scripture affirms that Job did lead a life dedicated to God, described as a righteous man, a man who did what was right in the sight of God. And yet, when uh, Satan attacked his, uh, the integrity of his faith, saying to God, he only serves you because you put a hedge of protection around him, God allowed the first attack that resulted in the death of his children and the destruction of his property. Satan still brought his accusation against Job, saying, skin for skin, if a man's body is attacked, that's when he will not remain faithful to you, God. And so God, not allowing Job's death, did allow the attack upon Job's body. And still, though Job got depressed, though Job went through a period of time where he even uh, cursed the day that he was born, he never cursed God. He never turned away from his faith in God. He never ceased being a believer in God. He kept his faith all the way through the end. Obviously, when you go through very, very difficult times, it's a struggle. And persisting in faith, much less persisting in some kind of ministry in church or trying to live for God in a godless society, that becomes more and more difficult the more you feel that your faith is uh, under attack and your circumstances are really hurting. Job's wife had a message for him. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? And that's probably the worst kind of a message that a wife can give to a husband. Certainly not helping him to persist, to endure in the faith. Job knew better. He affirmed when these bad things came upon him, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but you finish it. What did he say? That's right. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What an example. What a preeminent example of perseverance in the faith. You might be going through great times. You might be going through hard times. Many of us would wish we never had to go through the calendar year 2020 with everything we've experienced this year. I think for many of us, it's been an extra difficult year. Well, whether it's because of what we're all facing or repeated failures that you have gone through, whether you feel you have a lack of support from other people that they've let you down at crucial times when they should have been there for you, or whether you're just dealing with life's disappointments, feeling like wave upon wave pushing you down under every time you try to get your head above the waters. It's easy to give up on the faith. It's easy to give up and say, you know, I'm just not going to do anything for the Lord anymore. Well, maybe it's here where stories of failure followed by success can boost your determination. How often do we read about extremely successful people in the world and we forget how many failures they had to go through before they got there? Thomas Edison discovered a thousand ways not to build an affordable and long-lasting light bulb until he was finally successful. He learned through hundreds of failures. Henry Ford, it is said, filed for bankruptcy at least twice before succeeding with the lucrative Ford Motor Company. 
Michael Jordan lost his first seven years in the NBA, winning no championships, dealing with those uh, pesky Detroit Pistons for years before he could get past them. And then he finally won championship after another and got bored of it and went on to baseball. Even Elvis Presley, as a young man, visited Nashville and was told, why don't you keep your truck driving job? You have no career in singing. Well, the experts can be terribly wrong, and you can be discouraged by people who are supposed to know better, people that are supposed to be able to spot talent or knowledge or something about you, and they don't, and they discourage you. As a young person, maybe you've been aspiring to be something, but you don't see a pathway to it. And yet they cannot measure a person's determination. They cannot measure what the grace of God can do to change a person. It is amazing how God can work in people and reverse them completely around and send them in a direction that will do not only something successful for God, but great things indeed for God. Well, we're passing through very tough times. As I said, there's no doubt about it. Um, difficulties frequently lead to discouragement. And it could lead even to depression. And um, what is it that has the power to lift us out of despair? What is it that when you get down, you turn to so that your heart can be raised up again and not sink down into um, despair? For me, it is always God's truth. It is always getting my mind and heart back in preparing some kind of a message for you that God speaks to me, that he revives my soul, that he elevates my spirit again. God's word is what blows away the fog. It takes the wrong thinking out of my mind. It allows me to see reality the way it is, and it's bright for a Christian. The future is filled with hope for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see life as the king of heaven sees life, we are able then to say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and invest in eternity. I'm going to go ahead and give more to my Lord and Savior. I'm going to press on with a work in the church. I'm going to keep trying to be a strong witness at work because it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. And that's where you find the motivation to continue on and persevere for the Lord. Today we arrive at Acts chapter 14. And God's word here is going to bring before your eyes, I think, a great example of fortitude amidst adversity, a great example of forbearance in the face of persecution. I don't think anything is designed to discourage believers more than when Satan directly tries to inflict bodily harm upon believers, upon leaders of the church to get them to be quiet to close their mouths and no longer speak the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that's exactly what we see in our passage in Acts chapter 14 today. I think every last one of us can benefit from this, but particularly those of you who've been struggling with determination and motivation. Acts chapter 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Follow along, please, as I read this passage. Acts 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. Greeks is another way of saying the Gentiles. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. 
Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now every portion of God's word throughout the Bible has a message. It has a certain flavor. It, it brings to the fore some theme that God wants us to focus upon. And that's why typically I like right at this point after reading the text to give some kind of a summary of the passage so we can kind of get the framework, get the big picture of what we're about to dive into. Now what do we have here? If you were to summarize this little passage, you might just say, I'd added a little bit of history and they were persecuted and let's move on to the next sermon or to the next story. But here I think we see Paul and Barnabas right in the thick of Christian ministry. They're doing evangelism, they're doing church planting, they're in the front lines of disciple building. This is in their famous first missionary journey. And what a perilous journey that was, yet what a fruitful journey it was. And it's been fruitful since the opening of chapter 13, if you've been tracking with us way back whenever we were in chapter 13. You know, what a fruitful time. Cyprus and then coming to the mainland where Turkey is, traveling through there, many, many Jews and even more Gentiles coming to faith in the gospel. You might say the gospel is exploding upon the scene in the Gentile world. It's landing with power on the hearts of pagans. People had not heard of this God before. People that didn't understand the grace of God and how it worked. And as we already saw, God was bringing to faith those whom a long time before this he had appointed to receive eternal life. Evangelism was at full throttle. That's another way of putting it. But we know the world of humanity is a wicked place. And so along with productive evangelism comes persecution, comes division, comes even things that seem extremely unfair, acts of injustice against the church. If you want a taste of what real frontline gospel work entails, just read these seven verses again. It is intense. Read a little bit between the lines and think about how difficult this would be for these two men. It was hard, and it was meant to be hard. Satan's territory is not willingly relinquished. You think Satan just, you know, hears the apostles knocking on his door and says, oh, I see you're here in my territory. I think I'll step aside and let you win out. Of course he's not going to be like that. He's a formidable enemy. And yet, behold, Satan's lies are no contest for God's truth. If you go out and you say, you know what, these people are never going to believe in Jesus. Oh my, they look scary. I just don't think that God could ever use me in this kind of an area. You remember that you carry the power of God with you, and that is called the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Romans 1.16, you know it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It saves people who believe. 
Satan's intimidations are overcome by the boldness of the Holy Spirit working in very ordinary men, human instruments. I like what Dr. John MacArthur wrote here. He said, boldness is that essential quality without which nothing significant can be accomplished for the gospel. Boldness is what enables believers to persist in the face of opposition. Of course you're going to be opposed. Of course we are going to be opposed. You have to ask the Spirit of God for boldness. Make no mistake about it. If you put yourself in these men's sandals, we'll say, just for a moment, you will realize there was plenty of reason for them to quit. They had plenty of relentless opposition against them. And yet when we skim the passage, what do we see? We see perseverance. We see persistence. Look at verse 1. It says, they spoke. Go down to verse 3. It says, they spent a long time speaking boldly. Move down to verse 6. Uh-oh, it says they fled. <laughs> then you go to verse 7 and it says, they continued to preach. I like it. They're like the gospel energizer bunny. They just keep preaching and preaching and preaching. Traveling from one place to another, more opposition doesn't matter. This passage shouts to us, keep going, never quit. Perseverance in the work of Jesus Christ is necessary. I think it may be more necessary now than ever before in our lives. It's only the farmer who puts their hand to the plow and never looks back who's going to finish the job and reap the harvest. It is only the athlete who determines to run through the tape at the very end, no matter the pain, who's going to receive the prize. It's no good to start, run halfway, and then quit. It's no good. The church desperately needs young people and old people who do more than sit and enjoy expository preaching. Oh, I learned something new today. My mom hated when she didn't learn something new. She always thought I had a great sermon if she learned something new. So I got to think of something new to preach to mom. I don't know what she doesn't know, you know. It's more than that, is it not? It's not just like, oh, that was, that was presented well today. It's got to result in doing something, in application. After we listen, we must be determined to arise, go out there, and make a difference, yes? Three times, these men continued to serve, in their case, preaching and doing miracle working. Three times, they continued to serve after facing opposition after facing persecution. I want to show you these those three times, but I'm already telling you what I'm driving at. Each time you're going to see, rather than quitting, and they could have, they kept going and going and going. The first time is in verse 1. Focus your eyes there. Verse 1, after they were mistreated in the city of Pisidian Antioch. Now don't confuse Pisidian Antioch with the Antioch from which they were sent out way back at the beginning of chapter 13. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews. Remember, it's always the gospel goes to the Jews first, right? Together. And they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. 
Dr. Daryl Bach, I think he's one of the great Bible scholars of our day, points out in his Acts commentary this, Paul and Barnabas moved to a city on a high plateau over the plains, Iconium, sitting at an altitude of 3,370 feet. The missionaries are traveling the well-known Roman commercial road. And Iconium was in the central part of what is now the Kanya province in modern-day Turkey. It was a rugged, somewhat isolated location in the steppes of central Turkey. And then he goes on to talk about how in this somewhat isolated place, rugged, hard to reach, yet there were Jewish synagogues there, they found Jews, they found Greeks, and they preached the gospel. This wasn't easy to get here. And remember, we got to go back to chapter 13 to remember what they just experienced, and that was they were just driven out of a town. I don't know about you, but if I were driven out of town, my tail would be between my legs, and I'd be needing a lot of help. I'd need a lot of hugs. I'd need a lot of pats on the back, right? I'd need someone to sing to me. I mean, I would need a lot before I'd get back up again. I am not naturally a strong man, yet these guys look like they didn't miss a beat. These were tough hombres. These were tough dudes here. I'm sure it was all by the grace of God. So they traveled, you know, from Antioch, these Roman roads. They came from difficult circumstances, but they just kept going. They kept persisting in the ministry. They came to Iconium after being mistreated. Just glance back to verse 50 of chapter 13. It says, The Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Man, it wasn't even enough to bring them to the edge of the city. They had to, like, you get out of our entire district. We don't want you here. I mean, there's some scary women here, too. Don't doubt how scary some women can be. Remember, I mean, you know, Elijah faced down all the prophets of Baal, but it was one woman that made him afraid, remember? Jezebel. Tough lady, if we can call her that, or them that. Well, when you have rich and formidable and vicious and persistent local townspeople trying to stop you from serving the Lord... Oh, it's easy to call it quits. Again, I ask you to apply this to yourself for a moment. What might you and I have said to ourselves if we faced similar threats or dangers? And by the way, we may, we may, depending upon how the government views Christianity, we may be directly told you may no longer speak against this sin or that sin without these consequences. And we know we're going to continue to speak God's word, so... We know what we're headed towards, right? We're all headed towards West Virginia. <laughs> we're going to run West Virginia. No, no. No, we've got to stand and we've got to fight the good fight, right? Well, we might say, wow, this witnessing, you know, the gospel is hard. I, I didn't travel all the way out to this area just to make enemies. Maybe God doesn't even want us here. You know what? I'm turning back. Or, uh, 
we might have said, let's take a little bit of a softer approach in the next city. The last time it didn't work so well. Let's go slower. Let's spread it out over a couple of years and slowly begin to talk about Jesus. I know people that think that's the wiser strategy. Not Paul, not Barnabas. They didn't go slower the next time. They didn't talk softer the next time. Well, just to be honest, how determined... How determined are you to serve your Lord? Why does the Lord allow so much opposition to the gospel? Well, I can give you one reason. It's to prove something. It's to prove who is really committed. It's to weed out those who don't really think the gospel is worth personal sacrifice. Because see, many of us would prefer to have a nice and comfortable ministry for the Lord. But if you told us to do something that would take away too much of our free time or demand too much of us or not allow us to do all the things with a family we want to or make friends at the, uh, make enemies at the workplace, I'm trying to think of other oars here, but you fill in the blank. We just choose not to serve the Lord in those areas. We don't think it's worth it. And God knows what we actually think. These men were walking in the footsteps of their master. Jesus was the one who went out as a preacher, an itinerant preacher, preaching what the Gospels call the gospel of the kingdom. He was the king, the kingdom of it arrived, turn from your wicked ways, come to the king, believe in the good news, and you will be part of the kingdom. He preached and then he moved on to the next town, right? And he preached and he received opposition. Often that came from the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders of the town, the synagogues. And he was persecuted. Now that is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They are, they are preaching and they're moving from town to town and they are being persecuted. There are plenty of reasons people want to quit a ministry or give up witnessing to other people. Some say it's just too hard. It's just too hard. You remember John Mark? He quit on them in this very first missionary journey, right? Back in chapter 13. Others conclude it's not worth it. All the hassle. There was another guy named Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10 says, He loved this present world and so he abandoned Paul when the going got tough. Ah! These are not people that can be counted on. Here at Hope Bible Church, I have heard many justifications for people not serving or serving only a little bit where it's comfortable. You know, Pastor, I got burned the last time when I was in my last church. I didn't like how things worked, so I'm not going to be serving here for a long time. I remember hearing that from one guy, and I knew he didn't really mean it because I knew he had a heart for God. And I, I said, okay, I won't pester you. Of course I pestered him. I let time go by. I got in his face very nicely and gently, and he ended up becoming one of our deacons and served in a great, great capacity here. Other people say, my life is too busy, and they don't think about priorities. What's the priority in life? You can't do everything. Others say they don't want to hurt their family. Well, we don't want you to hurt your family either. But, you know, I can tell you, having a family that the kids saw a lot of sacrifice for the ministry 
that they benefited from it. There were times that were hard. There were times I made poor decisions as a father. But overall, the sacrifices we made, they observed it, and it benefited them. And by the grace of God, we have four kids who all want to serve. They expect to serve. They, they don't know what a Christian home is that's not intimately involved in serving. And some stay away from ministry, particularly leadership, because they're afraid to try and fail. Well, I have failed many times. There are many people that I wish I could have learned how to shepherd them better before they left the church, that now I don't have that opportunity anymore. But I didn't quit. I tried to learn from my failures and keep going on. And I hope and pray that wisdom now is to your benefit in my later years. I mentioned a pastor who's visiting with us this Sunday, and he lost his wife. I could tell you now, and I almost did lose Susan. Was it the second or the third year of this church plant? And I told the Lord, I, I, I won't be able to serve you without her. She's the real backbone behind this guy right here. And so I don't know how you've been able to continue on, but I do know if you were to testify, you'd give credit to the Lord and to his grace. There are a lot of excuses we can make. I got to finish my studies first before I serve. People like that usually don't end up serving. Because if you don't serve now and you have a really good excuse for not serving now, you're probably not going to serve too much later either. You have to have the spirit of sacrifice to know that even if I'm persecuted, it's worth it. Even if serving God prevents me from achieving other goals, it is worth it. Of course, we have to make wise ministry decisions. You don't want to hurt your family, and your family in ministry is your priority. But the Lord still bids you, come, follow me. You know, it's interesting when the devil gave Jesus the opportunity to fall down at his feet and worship him as a shortcut so that Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. And the devil said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Remember Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4? Jesus said, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship and serve. You shall worship and serve the Lord your God and him only. Service goes along with worship. What good is it to say you're very strong in worship and in devotion time, but you don't give time, talent, and treasure to service? The whole point of worship is that you learn to worship even in your body, even sacrificially, like Romans 12, verse 1 says, right? You give your body as a what? A living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. And Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Well, some of us grow weary and we pull back. If you're pulling back to reassess how to get involved again and serve more effectively, that's not such a bad idea. In fact, I would encourage some of you to do that. Some of you kind of, you just go and go and go and you're too busy. You need to think about how more wisely to serve, but to pull back because you just don't want to do it anymore. That's where you need to reassess your heart and your heart of worship. Well, what is it that motivated Paul and Barnabas to continue to serve? 
Well, from the context here, I found at least four motivations. Just jot these down and think about them. They might help you. Four motivations, and I'm sure there are more than these. First, they serve because their Lord commanded them to serve. In Acts 13, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, every last one of us is under command from God to use the spiritual giftedness and abilities that God has given to every single child of God. Just read 1 Peter chapter 4, and that section in there, I think verses 7 through 11, and you'll see the command to use your gifts in service for God. Second, they serve because they saw the fruit. They saw the fruit of service. In verse 1, it says, a large number of people believed. Boy, is that encouraging. When God uses you in evangelism, or God uses you to encourage a soul that is down and depressed, or God uses you to organize a church event where other people are blessed, or God uses you in some way, you look at that and you see it, you're like, wow, God used me. That's just so amazing and it's encouraging. Third, they found strength in service because they did not serve alone, but with a team. You know, camaraderie among missionaries is crucial. Paul and Barnabas were like-minded men. It is so much easier to quit when you feel the team that you're working with is pulling in different directions than you believe you should go. But when you're pulling in the same direction, boy, it's so much easier and the load is lighter. Fourth, the church at Antioch had sent them out previously and they knew because they were sent out by a local church, they had accountability and one day, one day not too far in the future, they would be returning to that church in Antioch and they would be giving a report. What did God do through you? They didn't have text messaging in those days, right? Hey, things are going well. First missionary journey, you know, pray tonight for the meeting or whatever. None of that. They got to summarize it all when they came back. I'm sure they must have had a very long service when they got back to talk through all of that. When we have accountability, there's motivation for service. And every last one of us is supposed to have that sense of accountability here. Aren't you a member of Hope Bible Church? And if not this church, another church? Aren't there people there that look at you and expect you to serve? Yes, I mean, hopefully they're gentle with you and not judgmental, but they urge you on because in service you can find joy. You can find great joy. And I don't know, if that's not enough accountability, I keep thinking of the day we're going to walk up, however many steps there are in heaven, to Christ's Bema Seat of Judgment, and he will review all of our life and all of our service for him. It's not just what you do at church or in the name of Hope Bible Church, but everything you do in the name of Jesus Christ in the workplace, when it's rough, when somebody mistreats you, that you do it in the name of Christ as service for him to glorify his name. And you realize, I'm doing that as service for God as well. Here's part of their motivation you too find motivation for God. By the way, concerning the fruit that they saw here, we have the added comment that their giftedness as speakers was used by the Lord to lead people to salvation. It says they spoke in such a way. In other words, they were quite persuasive in their gospel presentation. 
I say this because last time, Luke decided in the narrative to underscore how important the sovereignty of God in salvation was, that they were predestined to salvation. Look back at chapter 13 and verse 48. It says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's a divine passive. That means that God had appointed some people to gain eternal life, and every single person that was appointed to eternal life ended up believing. None were rejected. And so God, I mean, the ultimate reason why one person comes to Christ and gets saved and another doesn't is the sovereignty of God in salvation. However, don't push that to an extreme that the scriptures do not. God does use human giftedness in his design of predestination. These men had years of experience giving the gospel by this point in time, and it paid off. That means that they were able to anticipate objections from the Jews. They'd learned how to respond with solid answers. They knew apologetics. They knew the scriptures well. They were able to quote the scriptures in the right context. They made truth clear. The common folks of the town could listen and say, you know, I can, I can understand that guy. And what he says, well, it just has, it has a ring of truth to it. And God used that to fulfill his eternal plan. In John 6:37 it says, "All that the Father gives me," these are Jesus's words, "will come to me." That is sovereignty to the max. "All that the Father gives to me will come to me." None of them will be able to say no. None of them will want to say no. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You're going to be saved and you're going to be preserved and protected and defended by Jesus Christ himself. But in that sovereign design, he uses your choices and my choices in whom we go out and witness to and persist. Just think, there might be someone that you give, have given up on witnessing to and God wants you to go back just one more time. And that decision has been part of God's eternal plan all the way from the beginning. I remember at Frostburg State College that our good brother Dwayne, who, by the way, he just lost his uh, older brother, uh, Curtis, to this COVID-19 disease, terrible disease. His brother was in great shape, was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, took all of his bodily supplements, but still died, which means that we're all in the sovereign hands of God as to how many years we have. Anyways, Brother Dwayne just lost his older brother whom he loved. If you could pray for him, that would be great. But I remember when Dwayne said to somebody, Tom will never become a Christian because <laughs> he had tried to witness to me and I, I don't know what I said, but I must have been a discouraging person to witness to. But lo and behold, here I am. You know, somebody continued to give the gospel and I got saved. Well, there's someone out there God wants you to talk to. I don't know who it is, but you need to persist. Well, there may have been other reasons why they persisted. Look at verses 2 and 3. And this is the second time that we see them being mistreated. Verses 2 and 3. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Well, here's a repeat from the previous town. 
The Jews who disbelieved, ah, patheo, that term also means disobey at times. So by the way, being an unbeliever is an act of disobedience to God because he's commanded the world to repent and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And the unbelievers have refused, and that means they're being influenced by the spirit of disobedience. In fact, it even says that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. It says, the evil spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So unbelievers are sons of disobedience, and there's a spirit that works in them, and they work to disbelieve. Well, in their spirit, the spirit of unbelievers, they stirred up this spirit of hostility towards believers. They acted like pawns in the hands of the devil. And so there were some there that maybe thought, well, I don't like what these guys are saying, but they didn't want to persecute them, but somehow they were stirred up to do this. I think the ones that were more committed to false teaching realized this new message, this message about the resurrected Jew was a challenge and a danger to their beliefs, to their religion, to their area of conquest to the people that they had as followers. Satan himself knows this is the only message that can effectively attack his kingdom. But despite the repeated persecutions that they received, you can see their perseverance. It says they spent a long time there. It didn't matter to them. They kept preaching. You know, a true convert is a disciple of Jesus. In the book of Acts, when you see disciple, that means a true believer. If someone's not a disciple, they're not a true believer. And disciples need teaching, and they need constant teaching. And you can't just talk to someone, tell them about Jesus, and walk away. They need follow-up. They need teaching to ground them in the Word of God. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, If you continue in my teachings, if you continue in my Word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, right? You have to continue in the teaching if you're a true disciple of Jesus. Well, they did more than preach the gospel at them and exit quickly. They stayed, and they grounded these believers in sound doctrine. In order to persevere, notice that they had to rely on the Lord. Wow, that speaks to me. That means they had a humble mindset. When you're serving the Lord and you've been relying on yourself and you've been relying on your charm and your wit and your education and your degrees and whatever else that you think makes your ministry so great, you're going to come to an end of that. And when you come to the end of that rope and you hold it in your hands and you realize, I don't know what else to do. God's not using that anymore. That's when you're really going to learn to rely on God because you realize what a weak person I am. There's so much that I don't know. And then God really begins to work through you because you humble yourself and you rely on the Lord. So many times there are young people, and I used to be one of these young people, who criticizes older people, often the pastors, and says, you know, if I were doing ministry, I wouldn't do it that way. But, but you've never been in their shoes before. You've never had the pressure on them before. You've never had the complexities that they face, that you face. And sometimes, sadly, here I've seen people make those criticisms and leave, and then years later you ask, I wonder what they're doing now for the Lord. I wonder if they're bearing any fruit for the Lord in wherever they are. And unfortunately, sometimes it is they never really learned the lesson that they needed to humble themselves. They needed to learn to rely on the Lord more. And you know what? They're not really doing that much for the Lord. They would have been better to stay put and take criticisms of themselves and learn from older people. You know what? We may not be perfect, but we've learned a few things through time, and you can learn. And there's a lot there that you have to work on. Humble yourself, beloved. 
Learn from God. Learn to rely on God. Learn not to have confidence in self. There is a big difference between self-confidence and confidence in God. Would you agree? I think Paul and Barnabas also were encouraged to keep going because they saw the power of God working his miracles, those miraculous signs through their hands. These signs are clearly stated that they were given not just for any reason. Read it carefully. And you see that they were given in order to add credibility to the gospel. They were not just given for any reason at all, as people try to say, look, everywhere where we talk and preach, there ought to be miracles today. They did not eliminate all the sicknesses in the region. They didn't just perform miracles to wow people. You read about the signs and the miracles of the New Testament, and their purpose is stated very clearly, even here, testifying to the word of his grace. Why the miracles? Testifying to the word. That word was being delivered now for the first time. It was New Testament truth never given before, and God wanted the whole world to know this message is from me, If you don't believe the message right away, believe because you see the power of the miracle. They backed up the gospel. And so people would understand this is from God. This is the consistent teaching of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Write down 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12 and read that. Write down Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 and read that. Back in Acts 5 and verse 12, it says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place. Why? Because the apostles were the ones entrusted to deliver the new New Testament truth. We're told again and again why the healings, why the miracles to confirm the Bible as it was first being given. It is helpful that the Holy Spirit here reminds us that the gospel may also be called the word of God's grace. I love this. The word of God's grace. When they, and for that matter, when you and I preach the good news, please remember what it is. Yes, it's the Word of God. Yes, it's the Gospel, but it is God speaking His grace. It is God extending His mercy to a world that is about to face His wrath. Please remember that charis, grace, means undeserved favor from God. It is favor, true enough. But it's not the kind of favor that we have earned or deserve. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, what? Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one would boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Titus 3, 5. God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. Not because we attended church a lot. Not because we tried to live by the Ten Commandments. Not because we tried to live by the Sermon on the Mount, not because we participated in the seven sacraments of the church, not because we tried to obey the five pillars of faith of Islam, not because of our works, but by his mercy. Mercy is not deserved. Romans eleven six, salvation is by grace. 
I'm sorry, since salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Take a whole bunch of grace and drop a little bit of human merit into it, and it no longer is grace. Not one drop of human effort, of human works, of human glory may be added to God's gospel of grace. False Christianity, false religion always adds good works to the gospel. Do these seven sacraments and you'll be fine with God. Make sure your good works outweigh your bad works. That's a false message. Grace means you don't deserve it. You did not earn it. When you come to church and you're worried that one of your sins is going to be found out by the other holy people in church, remember that every single holy saint that is in God's church has a long history of sin that's been forgiven. And because it's been forgiven, we know what it means to be recipients of grace. Your only response to a gospel of grace is trust. Trust God. If you cannot affirm that you know your sins are forgiven, if you do not believe that you can know for sure that when you die you're going to go to heaven, then, my friend, you have been following a works-based religion, not this gospel of grace Paul and Barnabas were declaring. You know, it is uh, Reformation time, in the calendar year, next Sunday, we call Reformation Sunday, and we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. Why do we do that? It's 500 years ago. Why do we need to know about that? Because there would be no evangelical movement in the United States of America or Great Britain. I don't know if anyone's from Australia or wherever they're from. Really, anywhere in the world, if it were not for the men and women who realized that over time the Western church had abandoned the gospel of pure grace and had developed an elaborate system of works through a sacramental system where salvation was done by doing good works and staying close to the church and the church's priesthood and doing this and doing that and earning God's grace. They realized that's not what the Bible teaches and they stood up for the gospel of grace and they began to preach it and some of them lost their lives. And even before Luther, there were some that attempted reform and they lost their lives. And these men and women, they stood for God's grace and they preached God's grace just like Paul and Barnabas. And they were relentless and they had persistence and they continued on so that generations after them would have the gospel. They prayed for us. They prayed that hundreds of years later, this gospel would still be shining as a light in the West. And if it is, and it is, it is there because of them. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, unto the glory of God alone, as the Scriptures alone state it. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Any other gospel is no gospel. It is a gospel of works. And according to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8, that so-called gospel is under a curse from God. It is this wonderful word of grace that energized Paul and Barnabas. Oh, how could we ever quit evangelizing? How could we ever stop building up the church 
and making sure there's another local body there with a bright shining light? How could we turn back and even count our own lives as more precious when there are thousands, no, millions of people out there that are not yet saved, that need a local witness of the gospel, that need a local church that is putting out the right message in their land and in the area. How could we ever quit on this? I don't know if they had thoughts about quitting alone and at night in the dark when they were at their lowest. I don't know if you have ever thoughts of quitting, turning back from following Christ or just quitting from serving the Lord or toning it way, way down. But you remember just how powerful and how precious the gospel of grace really is, beloved. You're part of that no matter what you do. If you are ushering them, you're ushering them in here to hear the word of grace. If you are a techie person, you are helping us get beyond these four walls. If you lead a Bible study, if, 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 whatever the service is, God is using you to advance the church, to advance the gospel, to advance the glory of Christ. And beloved, we have more to say about perseverance. Obviously, we didn't get to all of it today. So we'll pick up right here next time. But please remember the importance of the grace of God and the persistence, the perseverance, the endurance that is so desperately needed in our church as well. We're going to pray, and then um, after I step down, we also have the blessing today of a child dedication. Pastor Plumley is going to come and lead us through that. Father, forgive us wherever we have doubted you, myself included, and we have said, even if it was just in our hearts, I'm done. Remind us how people sacrificed that we might be here today. Remind us how others gave up their time for us. Remind us, Lord, from the example of these apostles how important it is to persist, to know that we're being attacked by the devil, to know we're in a discouraging world, but to avail ourselves of those blessed resources that keep us energized in serving you. Oh, that you might turn every single believer in this church into a full-throttle servant of your Son and his kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace. We pray it unto the glory of Christ. Amen.